mentioned to you earlier that I visited uh, this other church last weekend, and the service uh, was over two and a half hours long. It was wonderful. (laughs) I sat there, it could have gone on and on and on. And you might, you might be looking at your watch now going, hmm. So I thought, we just experiment tonight for two and a half hours, is that okay? Yeah. <laughs> no, we'll try to bring it in under two hours for you. We're going to start chapter 10 of the book of Hebrews um, this evening. We're going to look at the first six verses. What's the message we preach? We preach Christ crucified, right? That's the message we preach. I want to underscore that because there's a lot of other messages being preached today. Even in presumably Christian churches. Christ crucified is not always the message that is preached. That's the message we preach here, however. We preach Christ crucified. To underscore that, I want to share with you a little a little anecdotal story about a uh, an English village who, in that village, there was a chapel, and the chapel had an arch. And on the arch were these words, we preach Christ crucified. And the story goes on, it says that for many, many years, godly men preached there, and they were faithful to present the message of the crucified Savior as the only means for salvation. But that generation of faithful teachers and preachers passed away. And a generation arose that considered the cross and considered its message antiquated, archaic, repulsive, awkward. And so they began to preach not any longer Christ crucified, But they began to preach salvation by Christ's example, much safer. You see, they didn't see the necessity or they lost sight of the necessity of his sacrifice. Now, after a while, the story goes on to say that ivy began to grow up along this arch. And it covered the word crucified in that statement across the top of the arch. So all you could read then was, we preach Christ. That's all that remained visible. Well, it wasn't very long that the church decided that its message need not even be confined to Christ and the Bible. So the preaching began to focus on all sorts of social issues philosophical issues and whatever was the fancy of the time, whatever sparked people's interest. 
Meanwhile, the ivy continued to grow up on the arch. And it covered the next word, Christ. So that all you could read on the arch was, we preach. That's a tragedy. And the reality is that that there are less and less and less people today preaching Christ crucified. Less and less understanding the vital need for confidence in the sacrifice that Jesus Christ made to save people. Beloved, people need to be saved. They need to be born again. There are all sorts of solutions all sorts of, of things offered to us to help us, to help us get better, to help us be better, uh, so that we can change. Beloved, there is no other solution to man's dilemma, to man's problem, except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And a confidence in Jesus. In fact, the Apostle Paul wrote to the Corinthian church, very cultured, very sophisticated church. He said to them in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2, that he would determine to know nothing among them except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That was his message to the Corinthian church, to the Corinthian believers. Jesus Christ, Christ crucified, is the only hope of mankind. He is the only hope. Now we say that's a very narrow message. It is a very narrow message. No one will be saved without faith in Jesus Christ. No one could be saved if Christ had not died for our sins. Now you say, I know that. I already know that. But how well do we appreciate it? How well do we value it? And how quickly are we prepared to tell other people about it who are desperately in need of being saved? The theme of the first 18 verses of chapter 10 really speak about this issue. And we're going to do a little bit of background, a little bit of rehearsing of stuff that we've already looked at. But it's essential. If we're to, if we're to grasp the value of Christ's death on the cross, then we must understand again and look again at the backdrop, and that's the Old Testament system of sacrifices. And I want to have you read with me the first six verses of chapter 10, and then we'll look at those verses. The writer says, The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. If it could, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. 
with burnt offerings and sin offerings, you were not pleased. Then I said, Here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, O God. Under the Old Covenant, remember the priests were busy all day long from, from dawn to dusk slaughtering and sacrificing animals. And if we could just imagine what it was like to be in Israel and to be part of that culture and that society, it, it, it just is amazing. I read in one source that it was estimated that just at Passover... As many as 300,000 lambs would be slain. 300,000 lambs would be slain just within the week of Passover. I mean, the slaughter was so great, so massive, that the blood would literally run out the temple, and there had to be channels dug in the ground to channel the blood down into the Kidron Valley and, and carried away by the brook down in the valley. Very, very bloody. The immense number of animals that were sacrificed is overwhelming. But no matter how many sacrifices were offered, no matter how often they were offered, the great numbers of animals and the continual repetition of those sacrifices, they were ineffective. The sacrifices were ineffective. They failed in three ways. They were, and, and, and it's important for us to understand the three key issues that must be dealt with and that these sacrifices could not be effective. The first instance or the first arena in which these sacrifices were not effective was that they could not bring access to God. They couldn't open access to God. Uh, this was the cry in the heart of all the worshipers in Israel. They wanted to, to be in. They wanted to know and have access to the very presence of God. In Exodus chapter 33, Moses tells God, uh, the psalmist speaks of, it's in, in his presence can he know joy. God, you give me joy in your presence. So you see, just in these couple of passages, and the, and the Old Testament is just littered with these kinds of, of passages uh, that people uh, longed for. Their hearts cried out for the presence of God. But they had no way of gaining access to God. People don't typically understand that. We just think that, well, anybody can go to God. No, not anybody can go to God. Some people say, well, I pray to God all the time. I, I, I don't need Jesus. I, 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 I talk to God all the time. Not the God of the Bible, you don't. You don't have access to the God of the Bible. Maybe you talk to a God of your own construct, of your own design, one who won't make too many demands on you. But the God of the Bible you don't have access to. I didn't realize that. Before I became a Christian, I thought, shoot, you could go to God any time. Well, you can, but you have to go through a person, don't you? Who do you have to go through? 
That's right. Now, these sacrifices could not gain them access to God. Even the high priest, remember, on the Day of Atonement, couldn't take the people with him into the Holy of Holies where the symbolic presence of God was. The people had to remain outside, didn't they? They could only be in the outer court. They couldn't even go into the holy place, let alone the Holy of Holies, where symbolically the presence of God was. All the old sacrifices, all the old ceremonies, though they are offered continually, day after day, year after year, they could never make perfect those who would draw near to worship. Think of how frustrating. You come to worship. We gather together to worship. Would it not be a frustrating experience to know we've gathered together to sing and to praise God, and yet we have no access to Him? Would that be a fruitless exercise? And if you began to realize that, that that somehow we had to offer sacrifices over and over and over and over here, would that give you a clue something's wrong with this system? It wouldn't be long before you'd get very, very frustrated. And guess what? There are people in the church who come to church over and over and over who get very, very frustrated. Why do they get frustrated? Because they do not know God. They're just going to church. They're going through the motions just like these people were. They're invested in a symbolic expression wherein there is no reality. These sacrifices were only shadows of the good things to come. That's what he tells us. They weren't the realities themselves. They were only shadows of the good things to come. The Apostle Paul tells us in Colossians, uh, he writes this letter to the Colossian church, and he says in chapter 2, verse 17, that Christ is the fulfillment of all the good things to come. What are the good things to come? Well, is forgiveness a good thing? Is it good to be forgiven? Absolutely. The people under the old system, under the old covenant, under the old sacrifices, did not have forgiveness. Forgiveness was to come. How about peace? Is peace a good thing to have? Is it good to be at peace with God? I'll say, it's good to know that God's guns of judgment aren't trained on you. It's good to know that just because you didn't read your Bible today, or you didn't get up and and dutifully pray, or whatever you, you were supposed to do, it's good to know that God's not mad at you. And He isn't going to whip you for it. Isn't that good to know? You're at peace with God. And you can have the peace of God. Which leads us to the next of these good things, a clear conscience. Is it good to have a clear conscience? Yeah, you can sleep at night. (laughs) Now some people have a seared conscience, isn't that true? Nothing bothers them. I've met people like that. I've met them here in the church. Nothing bothers them. They do things that are absolutely heinous. doesn't even bother them. They have a seared conscience. It's amazing. So how about security? Is security a good thing to have? Is it good to feel secure? 
Is it good to be secure? Safe. You know, there's a, there's a saying, you're in good hands, right? We are literally in good hands. We are secure. And lastly, above all, we have access to God. So the good things to come are forgiveness, peace, a clear conscience, security, and access to God. Wonderful things. None of which did these Old Testament worshipers have. They didn't enjoy them. They couldn't enjoy them. They were the promised good things to come. And Christ, and in Christ, is the fulfillment of all these things. Before Christ, no one could get closer to the good things of God than just the shadows of them. Even Judaism today is without many of the shadows. Now they have the Old Testament scriptures, right? Jews today. And they do celebrate many of the festivals, right? Okay. But they have no tabernacle or temple. They have no priesthood. They have no sacrifices. And these things are really substantial shadows of the good things to come. Are they not? Yom Kippur is still observed. True. Right? Around the world by Jews, isn't it? but without a high priest, without an altar, and without a sacrificial lamb. The shadows are the good things. They have some, but they don't even have all the shadows today anymore, tragically. Modern unbelieving Jews refuse to receive the new covenant. They, receive, they refuse to believe the new covenant that God made with who? Who did God make the new covenant with? He made it with Israel, the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Remember what Jeremiah said? And we what? We get to be grafted in. Boy, are we not fortunate? And they don't even believe the new covenant that God made with them. And the old covenant was what? A shadow of the new. So even now, for them, the old has lost essentially all of its significance. What was at best pale, a pale shadow, is even paler now for the Jews, present-day Jews. To make perfect, he says in verse 1, to make perfect. He says this old system, it was impossible for it to make these worshipers perfect. What does it mean to be made perfect? Well, it means simply to be brought to completion or to bring to the intended end. The end to which the Old Covenant pointed was access to God. That was the end. To be made perfect was meant to have access to God. The Old Covenant only pointed towards that. It was never intended to bring men to God. Only point to that. It could not make perfect because God never intended for the old system to make men perfect. And, and again, we have a parallel in society today. A parallel of what? Works. And there are many of us today that we still are trapped in this, this works mentality 
that somehow we'll be good enough, we can come to God if we do enough good deeds. How do we come to God? Through Christ, right? And the good deeds, what? They've been prepared for us to do, but what? After we've come to Christ, right? After we have access to God. They don't earn us anything. But the tragedy is, and it's such a subtle thing, I think, in so many people's lives, people who profess to be believers, is that they're still in this earning mode. And it's a subtle thing, isn't it? How wonderful it is to rest in the grace of God, the complete work that Jesus has provided for us. So that you don't have to work your way to salvation. You don't have to be guilty over, the, over falling short. And we'll talk about that in a bit. The old covenant, it's the old system, its purpose was to be a picture, not to perfect. It couldn't. It only pictured that which would perfect later on. Now, all of this, you know, it, it makes the old system sound absolutely worthless. And why in the world, if the old system, if the old sacrifices couldn't give men access to God, if it couldn't make a real difference in their life, if it was only a pictorial, why then did God go through all the trouble of giving it? What's the point? What's the purpose? Well, there's three good, three good thoughts. First one. It was to make God's people expectant. In other words, we said it pointed to that which was coming. It was to make God's people expectant. Let me read to you from 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 and 11. Peter says, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. So the prophets in writing had a great sense of expectation. They studied the scriptures. They wanted to know all that they could know about the good things that were to come. And the whole point of all of these Old Testament uh, ceremonies, these old covenant ceremonies and sacrifices, again, was to, was to point and to stimulate a sense of hope and expectation. Don't we have a great hope and expectation of Jesus coming back? Absolutely. And the, and the, and the scriptures, old and new, talk about the second coming of Christ, don't they? And so we long for that second coming. We long for that expectation. The same was true of the Old Covenant. If they read the Old Testament, they understood the types and the symbols in the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, they would see they all pointed to what? The first coming. And the good things that would come in Christ. There's a second reason that God gave that old system, and that was to remind God's people that the penalty of sin is death. The sacrifices, we talk about all that blood flowing, all those animals being slaughtered. A continual reminder that the penalty of sin is what? It's death. I mean, sin's a serious thing. 
We can, we can grow real casual about sin, can't we? We can say, well, nice sin today. I don't know about you, but there's times when, when, when I, before I go to sleep at night, I lay in my bed and I try to recount my day. And there are times when I think, gosh, did I, did I sin today? Here did that? You just, you think, you know, you recount your day kind of quick. And it's easy to pass over uh, things that maybe aren't quite so obvious. I mean, I experienced that. So I have to say, Lord, search my heart. Show me those hurtful ways in me. And uh, then all of a sudden, he begins to show me the things that are just under the surface, you know, the motivations. Why I said what I said. Why I did or not did not do whatever. And I begin to think, oh, that's wretched. Well, that's a prideful thing. And, you know, all of a sudden you begin to go, ooh, ooh, I stink. (laughs) The point I'm trying to make is that I think that we diminish sin. And we don't understand the gravity of sin and how offensive it is to God and what it cost him to pay for it. And in the Old Covenant, there's a graphic picture, these animals being slaughtered day after day after day, constantly in front of these people. The wages of sin is death. It's absolutely horrible. And so, uh, those reminders. There's a third one. God gave the sacrifices also as a covering for sin. Have you ever run for cover? From something? Isn't it great that there's cover? On a real, real hot day when the sun is blazing down, is it nice to have a place where you can get some shade? A little protection? This is the idea. He gave them cover from his wrath temporarily. See, even a shadow is better than nothing if it can to some degree cover you. Isn't that true? And this is the point. God is merciful and he covered over, protected his people from his wrath for a season, if you will, until Jesus' death on the cross. And so the sacrifices, this old system, uh, had some very, very substantial reasons uh, for its giving. And I'm sure the people, if they understood that, would be exceedingly thankful. Now let's move on to the second Reason that these sacrifices were ineffective. The first one was what? They couldn't give access to God. The second reason that they were ineffective was that they could not remove sin. I want to suggest to you that what we need is the removal of sin, not merely the covering over of sin. That's what man needs. Man needs it removed. When you become a Christian, when you are born again, God comes into you, into your life, and changes you, removes that sin nature, and gives you a brand new nature. Isn't that what the Bible teaches us? 
and you become a different person. Different in the sense, I mean, you're, you're the same, people know you, but you're different in that now your, your tendencies, your, your uh, uh, desires, the appetites of your life are more towards God than towards the old way. Why? Because God has removed that sin nature. He's removed sin out of you. That doesn't mean that you don't ever sin again. But He's given you a brand new internal nature. You are alive to God spiritually. There is no program in the world that can do that. There is no self-help book in the world that can teach you to do that. There is no way in the world that you can change yourself. It takes God to come in to a person's life and change that person and remove that sin. And remove also with it, guess what? The guilt of it. When we sin, isn't there guilt? I mean, don't we feel guilty? Unless, of course, we have a seared conscience. Is guilt a good, a good thing? Is it a necessary thing? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Because it tells us it's a signal that we've crossed over some kind of moral boundary. That we're damaging our soul. It's much like uh, physical pain. Physical pain is, is, is not desirable, but it's necessary, isn't it? I mean, if you put your hand on a hot stove, you want to make sure that all of the nerve endings are alive, don't you? Because if they're not, what's going to happen to your hand? You're going to cook it. So you put your hand on a hot stove, you want, whoo, man, that hurts. Good thing that it hurts. Because it's a signal that you've done something damaging physically to yourself. Our conscience is much the same way. When we cross over moral boundary, we feel pain. We, and that pain is called guilt. Sin and guilt can eat us alive, can't they? I mean, have you ever been so guilty over something? You've done something knowingly, you've done it wrong, you've, 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 you've hurt somebody, you've said something, and you feel terribly guilty about it, and you have not done anything to reconcile, and doesn't that just eat you up and eat you up and eat you up? Unless, of course, you have a seared conscience. It doesn't bother you. You never want to get to that place, do we? Mm-mm. So... The old system could not remove sin, and it could not remove guilt. If you look down in verse 2, he tells us that. He says, they would no longer have felt guilty for their sins if these old sacrifices were efficient, were effective. These people lived with guilt continually. They had no confidence whatsoever that their sins were forgiven. What a tragedy. Put yourself in their place. How would you like to live your whole life under that cloud of guilt, no way that you could be forgiven? You're living with guilt continually. We know people like that. Some of us were them, huh? Until we heard the good news of Jesus Christ, that we could come to Christ and we could be forgiven and the guilt removed. And once that guilt is removed, the anxieties, the tensions, the fears that are all attendant to that stuff that plague us and that overshadow our life dissipate because of the miraculous work 
that God does. But under this old system, he goes on to tell us in verse 3 that the sacrifices, they couldn't do anything like that. All they were were a reminder of sins. It's kind of like a medicine that can't cure. All the medicine that can do for you is just cover over the symptoms, give you symptomatic relief. But you have to keep taking the medicine over and over and over and over. And what does that tell you? It just says that you're not cured. What a drag. Wouldn't you much rather find a medicine, take a medicine that would cure you? Sure. So you could finally experience some relief. But if there's no relief and you're constantly suffering with this stuff, that ought to tell you something about your life spiritually. It's only Jesus that can remove sin. Only Jesus can remove guilt. Only Jesus can bring peace into a person's life. Only Jesus. If there's not peace in your life, there's reason to wonder why, reason to question. And we can't look at other people and say, well, there's no peace in my life because of that person. No, 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 no. There's no peace in your life because of that person. And there's some disruption in this relationship between this person and God. And you can't just trust in religious exercise. You can't just trust in coming to church. You can't just trust in reading your Bible. You can't just trust in doing some pious spiritual activity. There's got to be a real, live, vital relationship with the living God. We preach Christ crucified. When we sin, we feel guilty. We're aware of our wrongdoing. We have some sense of guilt about it. Old Testament believers were never freed from guilt in their life. That's what he tells us. But the Christian, the Christian, though not insensitive to sin, are we insensitive to sin? No. When we sin, don't we feel guilty? Appropriately so? Absolutely. But we know that we have forgiveness in Christ. Isn't that true? So though we fall short, we know that we can confess our sin. God is faithful and just to forgive us, cleanse us of all unrighteousness. We have forgiveness. Christ died for that sin. And that He died for that sin. So we know that we can have forgiveness. We are confident of that. And also, we can be confident that we're freer, or free from the fear of judgment. God is not going to judge us because of that sin. That sin was already judged. It was already judged. Thirdly, the old sacrifices were ineffective because they were only external. They were only external. They never got to the heart of the problem. They were just external sacrifices. We saw that back in chapter 9, uh, verses uh, 13 and 14. Sin is manifested externally, isn't it? But where does it reside? It's in the heart. It's in the heart of man. That's what Jesus says. It's out of the heart of man come all these evil things. So we see sin manifested externally, but the real problem is inside. The old sacrifices had no way of reaching inside of a person and changing him. 
Only God can reach inside a person and change them through Christ. Literally change them. Have you been changed? Are you different? People who knew you before you became a Christian know you now as a Christian. Do they see a substantial difference in your life? They tell you, do they say, you're different, you're better, I like you more now? Sometimes they say, no, that's right. Because now you don't party with them, right? But if the truth be known, if you are being changed, if Christ has come in, Remove that heart of sin, remove that heart of stone, giving you a new heart. Then you ought to be different, and it ought to be noticeable. We don't hide our lamp under a, under a basket. It should be out there bright for people to see. The old sacrifices couldn't do that. You see, because there was no... He tells us in verse 6 there, or I'm sorry, at the end of verse 3... He tells us that there was no real relationship between a person's sin and an animal sacrifice. The relationship was only symbolic. There was no real relationship. How could the blood of an animal, an amoral animal, without an animal that's not good or bad, how could that blood possibly bring forgiveness for a man's moral offense against a holy God? There's no way. There is no way. The blood of the animal was only symbolic of somebody else's blood. Who is that? That's right. Only Jesus Christ. Only Jesus Christ. The perfect union of divinity and humanity. Of deity and humanity. Only Jesus Christ. He, he and he alone could satisfy God and could purify man. No other... No other resource available to all mankind could make that kind of difference. Could finally satisfy God's demand for perfect justice and perfectly purify men. Only Jesus. Animal sacrifices only pointed to that sacrifice of Christ. Beloved, we preach Christ crucified. It's essential for us to know also, I think, that in the offering of those old sacrifices... There was an internal component that was required if those sacrifices were indeed to be acceptable to God. There was an attitudinal thing that had to be in the person's heart. Can you think of what that would be? Huh? David talks about it in Psalm 51. He talks about what? A broken and contrite heart? See, when you offered the sacrifices, it wasn't just a mechanical exercise, although for many people it became that, just a mechanical exercise, just offer the sacrifice, that was it. It's like so many people just come to church, that's it. They do their religious duty. But the sacrifices were to be offered with what? A broken and contrite heart. If there was to be any covering at all, where does God look on the heart, doesn't he? He doesn't care about the animal sacrifice, he says. He doesn't care about the sacrifice of the bull or the lamb. or what. That's not the issue. The issue is the heart. But he gives the sacrifices 
as an expression of the heart attitude. And they could not even experience the covering temporarily of sin if that attitude wasn't right. Same is true today. The same is true today. How does one get saved? How does one come to salvation? What's necessary? What's a necessary precursor for one to come to salvation, to have access to God, forgiveness of sins, peace, a clear conscience, repentance? But what precedes repentance? A broken and contrite heart, right? Would you agree? Paul says an interesting thing in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. I find this fascinating. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation. Now I think if, if you read that verse in, in the context... It's, it's addressing another issue, but I think there's a principle included there that is vital for us to know. Godly sorrow brings repentance. How many times have we said, or we know people who've, told, who've said to us, I'm sorry, I won't do it again. And they do it again anyway. Because there was what? No real genuine repentance. Right? Right? They exhibited what he says, what Paul says in that passage, is worldly sorrow. Worldly sorrow brings regrets, doesn't it? Or, or, it, it? It's worthless. But godly sorrow brings repentance. And it's repentance that's critical if salvation is to come to anybody. What's repentance mean? Repentance means turning around, doing a 180. You've been walking this way, and you're turning around and walking this way. You look at your life, you look at what you've done, you look at how you've lived, you look at your attitudes, and you, with godly sorrow, you go, Oh, how repulsive! How disgusting! How could I ever justify that? It's the kind of sorrow that God has over our sin. And once we experience that kind of sorrow, you run. You can hardly wait to get away from that stuff. Isn't that true? That's repentance. And that's the kind of repentance that leads to salvation. That's the stuff that turns the light on. Sometimes I wonder how many of us have, have experienced godly sorrow. Most of us have experienced worldly sorrow. Because one, what, we get caught. Or we don't want to get punished. The policeman stops you. You just run a red light. He stops you. What do you say? I'm sorry. I'm sorry I broke the law. No, I sinned against God and I sinned against... Do you, no. He says, what do you have to say for yourself? I'm sorry, officer. Why? Sorry for what? Because you got caught. Sorry because you're going to get a ticket. But you're not sorry that you broke the law? Really? Really? 
Remorse and repentance. Repentance is taking that remorse and moving with it. Leaving that stuff behind. I am really repentant. Remorseful, if you, if, you, if, you, if you put that in terms of godly sorrow, that's the thing that drives you to repentance. Without that, you will not truly repent. You just play the game. You just play the game. If you want to be saved, you've got to see your sin for what it really is. And you've got to come with, in effect, a broken heart for your sin. Quit pointing the finger at other people. Quit justifying. Quit saying, well, it's not my fault. It was the way I was raised. I'm a victim. Well, you may very well be a victim. We're all victims. Did you know that? But at some point, you've got to stop and say, but my sin. God, I'm sorry. Truly sorry. Forgive me. And repent. But you will not repent unless that sorrow is there. Because that's what drives the repentance. And that's what leads to salvation. Because you can do nothing more except cry out, Jesus, save me. And it is real. We preach Christ crucified. The old system couldn't save. The old system couldn't give access to God. It couldn't remove sin. It was only external. But Christ, he makes all the difference. Amen. Father, thank you. Thank you for Jesus. Jesus, thank you that you came. And thank you for your word, which as we read and study and think it through, we see the wonder of of your great sacrifice and how effective it is for life, for salvation. Praise your name, Lord Jesus. I worship you tonight. I love you and I give you thanks. I bless your name. Now some of us are at a point of decision. Keep your heads bowed. There are some people here who... you you've begun to think a little bit differently about your life maybe and the solution to your problems, fears, anxieties, whatever, guilt. Maybe for the very first time you've begun to understand that you are a sinner and you're gravely in need of God's forgiveness. Well, I, I, I want the privilege of leading you in a prayer to ask for his forgiveness in a prayer of commitment in Jesus Christ. I'll pray this prayer in just a minute. But I don't want to pray by myself. I want to make sure that there are some people who want to pray with me. In a group this large, there certainly may be at least one or two. Now, I don't know who you are, and all I do know is that God has brought you. He's made this appointment. He's been speaking to your heart all along. You know that you need forgiveness. You know that you need his peace. He can only give you a clear conscience. You can't rationalize away your sin. It's only he that can give you security. And it's only he that can give you access to God. 
Now, if you'd like to pray a prayer with me, you're going to pray this prayer, you're going to make a commitment to Jesus, to faith in Him, confidence in His death on your behalf. Then you can signal me and say, Pastor, I want to pray with you. I want those things. I want to be forgiven. I am sorry for my sin. And I am truly repentant. And I want to know God, and I want to have everlasting life. If you want to pray with me, signal me just by lifting your hand up, and then we'll pray just in a second. Is there anybody at all that wants to pray that prayer with me? Just raise your hand. Okay, good. I see those hands over on the side. God bless you. Anybody else? I see your hand. Okay, I see your hand in the middle, sir. God bless you. Anybody else? God's touching your heart, if He's speaking to your heart and you're feeling a little bit nervous, don't hold back. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. It's important for you to understand that we there's no guarantees that tomorrow's going to come. If God's speaking to your heart, He's calling you to a point of commitment now. Step out, make that commitment. Pray this prayer. One last opportunity. Anybody else? Just slip your hand up. All right, let's pray. If you raise your hand, make this your prayer. You just pray along with me under your breath. Remember, God looks at your heart. It's not the eloquence of the words. It's it's your heart attitude. We talked about that just a moment ago. God, forgive me. I do confess that I'm a sinner. And I am sorry for my sins. They are repulsive to me, but they're more repulsive to you. I repent of them. I ask for your forgiveness. Cleanse me of all that sin and all the guilt and all the unrighteousness that is brought in my life. I confess to you that I believe in Jesus and and I come to you and ask for this forgiveness. Because Jesus died for my sins. I've heard that. And I place my confidence in Jesus. That he died, was buried, and rose after three days to bring me new life. And I receive that new life now. God, by faith, wash me clean. Give me a new heart, a second chance, a clean slate. Cause me to be born again. I believe in Jesus. And God, strengthen me that I may live my life for your glory from tonight on all the days of my life. God, thank you, and I love you, and I praise your name. We pray this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, welcome to the family, those of you that raised your hands. Now, if you raise your hand, there's a couple of things that's real important for you before we close the service. One, I want you to come Sunday night and be baptized, all right? If you aren't water baptized, now you come and you make this public profession of your faith through your water baptism. This is part of being a Christian. So you've stepped out. You said, God, I'm serious. Now, part of expressing the seriousness of your heart is the fact that you will be baptized Sunday night. Secondly... Pastor Tracy uh, is there by the uh, prayer room, and we'd like to meet with you for just a couple of minutes. 
Uh, we'd like to, one, find out who you are, uh, because we'd like to also follow up with you and encourage you in these several next, next several days of your new Christian experience. Also, if you have some questions, we want to answer those questions. And thirdly, we want to be able to uh, help you understand what comes next in your Christian experience. Just like I said, baptism. There's another thing that I want to talk to you about, and that's the class that I teach called Discovering Hope, <clears throat> starting uh, the first week of March. So these are very, very important things, and if you want some encouragement, some help, Pastor Tracy, I encourage you to go back and uh, speak to one of our pastors uh, back in the prayer room. Let's stand and sing our God's praises one more time before we dismiss. You who was and is and is to come, you are a priest of a new covenant. By the power of your immortality, sworn by the power of your word, glad for Jesus? Somebody say hallelujah. Hallelujah. All right.